Here's another Bible study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Hey, if you have your Bibles, why don't you turn to Acts chapter 17, as we're working our way through the book of Acts. Acts chapter 17. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Father, we do come before you this morning. Lord, we are grateful for your salvation. Lord, we are so grateful that you, Lord, intervened. Lord, you uh, came into our situation, into our history, into our life. And uh, Lord, you saved us. And Lord, I thank you for that. Thank you for your intervention in our hearts and in our lives. Lord, this morning, as we look at how the Apostle Paul and others with him traveled about, uh, Lord, that how the Holy Spirit just worked through him to reach people that had no idea even who you were. And Lord, as we read through this, we, we recognize that, that, Lord, that happened to us. Lord, you got a hold of us. You pursued us, and so we're so grateful for that. Lord, we want to pray for those that are uh, being persecuted for their faith. Lord, we pray that you would be with them, protect them, provide for them and their loved ones. And Lord, Lord that they might continue to look to you for their hope and for their future. And Lord, this morning, I pray that you might fill me with your spirit as I share your word with your people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 17. I call this a, a tale of three cities. I was trying to be smart, but anyways, um, we're going to be looking at three different cities as we go through this, um, beginning with the city known as Thessalonica. So Acts chapter 17, verse 1. Now, excuse me. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, um, they came to Thessalonica. There was a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul, as his manner was, went into them, and three days, uh, three Sabbath days, excuse me, reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered. I think I'm reading from the King James, aren't I, instead of the New King James. Anyways, um, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. Is that the same as the New King James, or was that a little bit different? It's different. All right. I have those in my notes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow along in my Bible, because I'm like, this is not what I study. <laughs> Actually, it is, but uh, it just... I put the scriptures right on my iPad, and it just—it's just—it's nice to have it all in one place. But sometimes, like today, that didn't work out so good. All right. So, Saul and Paul and Silas, um, undoubtedly, they took what was known as the uh, Via Ignatia or Ignatia. Um, it was, would you be considered like the Autobahn of, of Europe? Uh, it was a superhighway, basically. It stretched from the Aegean coast of northern Macedonia to the western coast of what is today modern Albania along the Adriatic Sea. And so traveling from Philippi, uh, Paul and those with them, they would have gone from Philippi to Amphipolis, which is about 30 miles journey. So by foot, about 30 miles journey. Uh, and from there... Uh, to Apollonia, that would have been another 30 miles beyond that. And then 40 miles beyond that was Thessalonica. So if you do the math there, it's about 100 miles, basically, roughly. And uh, walking 
would be probably anywhere from two to four miles per hour is kind of a normal a normal walk. So having kind of factored that in, it would have taken about one to two days to reach Amphipolis and another one to two days to reach Apollonia and then another two days probably to reach Thessalonica. So anywhere from like four to six days of just walking along this way. Now think about this. Paul and Silas had just been beaten with rods and put in these very painful stocks in a dungeon and now they're walking a hundred miles uh, along this way. So you can imagine why or how that must have felt for Paul and Silas as they're going along this way. Um, you notice that there's no mention of them stopping in those two cities, uh, Amphipolia, Amph, Amphip, whatever, that city, A and A, those two cities. <laughs> there's no mention of them staying to evangelize that, and it's kind of curious why that's the case. But if you look in your Bible, you notice that what it says about Thessalonica was that there was a synagogue of the Jews there. And so it kind of implies or infers that possibly those two other cities, like uh, Philippi, didn't have synagogues there. And we know from scriptures, and we'll see it over and over again, Paul's custom as he goes through cities is to methodically uh, evangelize. He'll start at a synagogue, and he'll start teaching at a synagogue, and then from there he'll start ministering to the Gentiles in the city. Um, he didn't do that in Philippi, right, because there was no synagogue there. And so there was just a gathering of Jewish uh, women there by the river. And so, uh, you know, Paul's led by the Spirit. He's not stuck in a rut. And uh, so we kind of see that. So, you know, he based his routine. Uh, you know, he's got this routine, but it's based on the situation. And, you know, I think that's so important for us. Sometimes we can get stuck in a ministry rut of this is just the way I do things. And, you know, it, what, what a great thing to be led by the Spirit in this. You know, it's possible, and Scripture doesn't really tell us that Paul could have just sensed the Spirit telling him to move on and not stop there. Um, but what's interesting is if you read this, Acts chapter 17, and then you also read 1 Thessalonians, um, it's, it's kind of, a, it's really an eye-opener. It kind of gives you a little bit, it kind of fills out the picture a little bit more. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul says this. He's writing to the church there after it's been established. He says, For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. So it's quite possible that the Thessalonians themselves went to these other two cities and evangelized them after they got saved because the news spread so far. So Paul gets to Thessalonica with Silas and those with him, and it says that he reasoned with them from the scriptures. And really what that means is just to present intelligent discourse. That's what it means to reason. And notice that they did it from the scriptures. That's so important. Paul would write this to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3. He would say, But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, and for correction, and for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, 
thoroughly equipped for every good work. So Paul's reasoning with them from the scriptures. He's using the scriptures, and that would have been the Old Testament scriptures at that time. And it's, he was explaining and demonstrating, and I, I read the King James earlier, that he was opening and alleging. It's kind of interesting. Opening means to open the scriptures or to explain or to expound the scriptures. And again, you think of your, if you're a Jewish person and you've gone to a synagogue all your life, these are familiar to you, right? You, you've heard them. You, maybe you've even memorized some of the scripture. But now the Apostle Paul is opening up the scripture to them. It means to open what before was closed. You know, can you imagine when Jesus rose from the dead there and he's traveling and, and if you were one of those two disciples on the road to Emmaus and you didn't know that that was Jesus and this guy comes alongside you asks what's, asks what's going on and you're like man did you just come out from under a rock I mean didn't you hear about Jesus you know and, and they start telling him about it and then from that point on Jesus starts explaining the Old Testament scriptures to them stuff that they would have read they would have known that scripture but all of a sudden boom it's opened up. In fact, after Jesus leaves from them, it says, They said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? That's what the Apostle Paul did. It means to open the ears, the eyes, and the understanding in the heart. You know, in the book of Nehemiah, there's one verse there that I think is such a cool verse, and it talks about the Levites, and they're reading the scriptures to the people that are gathered there. And it says, so they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. That's what I'm doing today, hopefully. I'm, I'm giving you the sense and helping you, hopefully, to understand what we're reading. So opening the scriptures to people. And you know, I, I wonder how many of you have read Acts chapter 17. I would imagine all of us have read Acts chapter 17 before. But you know, it's always my prayer that the Holy Spirit would just open our eyes afresh as we go through that. So he's opening the scripture and he's alleging or demonstrating. And that word means to place alongside. In other words, he was using scriptural support and examples for the things that he was teaching about Jesus. You know, I can make the Bible just say just about anything that I want it to do. You know, but the thing is, God's word never contradicts itself. And so whatever I teach, is there a biblical support for my belief? I've shared this in the Calvary Chapel Distinctives when we were talking about the, the priority of the Word of God. And, and this is just a good thing. It's a, it's a rule of thumb that I use when I'm, when I'm thinking, looking at different teachings or different doctrines. Basically, I ask this question, did Jesus teach it? And then, if I can answer yes, okay, I'll go to the next thing. Do you see it in the book of Acts? Did the church in the book of Acts example it? And, you know, you can, maybe you're answering yes to those two things. And then the, finally, do the epistles expound on it? You know, if you take that rule of thumb and you, go, you can pretty much get rid of a lot of junk, a lot of fluff that's not scriptural, a lot of things that are, you know, you can see it in churches and teachings and stuff. And if you, if you, if you sift it through the, God's word basically like that, you can really, uh, you know, you can eliminate a lot of confusion that way. So Paul and Silas, they're in the synagogue, and for three Sabbaths, they're reasoning, they're opening the scriptures 
to the people there. Now, we don't know how long the men stayed there in Thessalonica, but what's interesting is Paul would write to the Thessalonians later in chapter 2, verse 9. He'd say, For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil, for laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, uh, we preach to you the gospel of God. Night and day, preaching the gospel. In the letter to the Philippians, Paul writes this in chapter 4, verse 15. Now you Philippians know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. So Paul was not a burden to the Thessalonians. He was just ministering alongside, but he was being supported by the believers there in Philippi. And it says once and again that they sent aid. So again, we don't know how long. I don't know that it was just three weeks that they were there in Thessalonica, um, but we do know they was spent three weeks teaching in the synagogue. Verse 4 says, And some of them were persuaded. And what that's referring to is the Jews. And then a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. And that would have been proselytes, Jew, Gentiles that were seeking God, they were seeking Judaism, and they would have come to the synagogue to search the scriptures. And so it says some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. You know, as evidenced in First Thessalonians, if you read that, many Gentiles came to faith in Christ there. It was, it was a large Gentile church there in Thessalonica. We'll actually find out in Acts chapter 20 the names of two of the guys, Aristarchus and Secundus, because they're going to later on, they're going to join Paul in his mission uh, journeys. But it says not only the, that there was a, a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. And again, I mentioned that those were Gentile proselytes. But there was also a lot of pagan idolaters that uh, came to faith and you can read that in first thessalonians it's interesting when it says not a few of the leading women that's it's kind of a weird way to say it, but that means a lot of leading women you know it's just kind of a, the weird way the bible says that i like what the late pastor jack arnold said he said the gospel had a real appeal to women especially women of the upper classes who were prominent citizens in the greek cities there is a reason for this magnetic appeal Christ had to women. These were educated women who knew the Greek philosophies and had been in the religious cults. They knew that these man-made philosophies were empty, vain, and dead, offering nothing for the inward spirit. These philosophies and mystery cults were totally humanistic, full of voluptuous and degrading sexual practices, which left these women devastated and filled with self-loathing. They were disgusted with free sex, and they turned to Jesus Christ for forgiveness, who in turn gave them a sense of self-worth and value as human beings. That's Pastor Jack Arnold. I, I heard a story that he was preaching and he was talking about heaven and he died right when he finished preaching about heaven and he's there in the in the in the presence of the savior now fascinating i hope i don't do that this way <laughs> well i mean whatever <laughs> but you know when i was reading that i was thinking about that you know these leading women who were educated they they knew all the greek myth mythology and everything and you know rome was a very decadent decadent uh society 
And you know, as we were talking about the Jesus revolution earlier, all these hippies coming to faith in Christ, you know, one of the things that was rampant in the early 60s was basically free sex, right? Open sex. Who needs, who needs to be married? We can just, you know, uh, be with anybody we want. And, uh, and a lot of those people that were part of that sexual revolution, they call it, man, they, they realized the emptiness of it and that there was no future. And, and, and they were left miserable and empty, you know, looking for some kind of a fulfillment. And it just, it just, it just was a beautiful colliding of this, this need, this great human need going on in people and the Lord doing this work in that generation. And so many of these people came to faith in Christ Jesus. You know, I think we're kind of in a similar place now here. Today, people are looking for some kind of fulfillment. And some people, you know, they're, they're going through identity changes or, you know, they're confused about their, their sexual identity, identity or, or, you know, they're seeking fulfillment in same-sex relationships. And what's going to happen is they're going to find that that's empty too. That, that, that's going to leave a hole in their souls also. Because there's nothing that can fill that need except for Jesus Christ. And so I think about this. You know, here Paul is going to these cities and all these people that, you know, they're, they're, they're in that society with all the free, you know, free... I mean, sex was worshipped in the Roman culture. And yet it was empty. And all these people, they just, they just... The church just exploded in that day. And I find the parallel where we're at today. Thinking, man, God, do another work like you did before. We have an opportunity here in our generation, and I think it's getting greater and greater. And it's not a, an opportunity for us to be judgmental and condemning. But you and I, man, we can offer hope and healing and identity and purpose in Christ Jesus. And we, we, have, the, we have the answer, and it's found in Christ, in relationship with Christ. What we learn from the Thessalonians through the, Paul's letter to them is that they were persecuted for their faith. Let me read this. 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 5 and 6. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. In chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians, verse 14. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God which are in Judea and in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans. So all these people that are getting saved, they're also getting persecuted. They were persecuted people, but they were also a transformed people. Again, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And then in the next chapter, chapter 2, verse 13, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you 
who believe. The Thessalonians, man, they were a transformed people. The word of God was working effectively in them. Let me ask you this question. Is God's word working in effect in you today? I am so blessed by how many of you had taken up the challenge to read through the word of God. And I just want to hear to encourage you, keep, keep on, don't give up. And maybe you didn't and you thought, man, I should have jumped on that wagon. It's not too late, man. Just start reading. Just start reading now. But as you're reading, man, are you, are you meditating on it, praying through it, and then allowing God to transform you in it? Well, that's what was taking place with the Thessalonians. But then we get this next verse, verse 5. But the Jews, who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace, and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. So we saw this last week when we talked about the owners of the slave girl. Also now there's this spiritual opposition. And it wasn't necessarily because they were believing different. It was because the Bible tells us because of envy. Think of that. You know, here's this little synagogue, and we don't know how big a synagogue is, but there's this synagogue there, and these, there's some proselytes coming there, and, you know, who knows how many people were there. And then Paul comes and starts preaching Jesus Christ, and people are getting saved by the thousands. And, you know, those Jewish rabbis there are like, man, you know, they're, they're getting jealous. They're getting jealous. They're envious of what's taking place. You know, envy... It was the prime motive in the tax against the Lord Jesus during his ministry. The Pharisees were envious of the Lord. And as we see, saw it last week and we see it today, these people are envious over the apostles too. You know, envy is a bad thing. Proverbs 14, verse 30, A sound heart is life to the body, but envy is rottenness to the bones. Envy is such, a, it's such an insidious it's a bad, it's a bad thing to, to deal with or to, to have lodged in your heart. What is envy? Well, you know, it's rooted in pride. It really is. In fact, you could probably take any sin and it all comes down to pride, basically. That's, that's the prime basic, basic uh, thing. But envy is rooted in pride. Why? Because you see what someone else has and you feel like you deserve it. And so you start, you know, why did, you know, I deserve I deserve all that attention. I can see the rabbis. We deserve to have all these people turn. I mean, after all, this is a foreigner. We've lived here all this life. You know, they've seen our holy walks and everything, and the, that envy sets in. And you know, if you and I don't address envy in our own hearts, what happens next is it turns to malice towards someone. So you're envious of them, and, and you, you're like, I deserve it. And pretty soon you start wishing evil upon them. You know, if, so, if, if that thing that they have, t it goes away, you're like, yes, finally, you know. That's our hearts. Can you tell that I, I'm familiar with that emotion? <laughs> you know, it's interesting, too. The devil didn't introduce envy. The devil didn't introduce envy to these people. What he did is he just inflamed that passion that was already present in their carnal nature. And we have that sinful carnal, carnal nature. Man, envy is just, it's, it's there. It's, it's ready to, to boil up to the surface. Anger is there. It's ready to boil up to the surface. 
All those things are there. It's in our flesh. And that's why we need to have a daily funeral for our flesh. We need to have a funeral service every day, every morning for our flesh. Colossians 3.5, Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Paul wrote that to the, to the church in Coloss, but he also wrote it to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 3.3. 3. For you are still carnal, for where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? So the devil didn't introduce envy. He just kind of like, yeah, look at those guys. You know, he got them going, basically. He basically inflamed what was already there under the surface. So going back to our story, verse 6. So these envious people, they're angry, right? And they get this mob formed. Verse 6, but when they did not find them, they're looking for Paul and Silas, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Did you notice the accusations that were leveled against them? The first accusation is these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Man, they are upsetting the apple cart. They are, they're, they're, everything's just completely in confusion. Everything's flipped over now because of these guys. Well, you know, they were in good company. They really were. Elijah was in their company. Ahab called him the troubler of Israel. Great prophet Elijah. He's the troubler of Israel. Jeremiah was accused of being treasonous. Amos was accused of conspiring against Jeroboam. And Peter was accused of filling Jerusalem with the doctrine of this Jesus Christ. So they're not in they're they're in good company. Turning the world upside down. It's kind of interesting that the world looks like that, right? That they say that, you know, you're completely flipping things around. But you know what the reality is in the Garden of Eden, when Adam sinned, the world was the, world was the way it was supposed to be. And when sin entered, the world went upside down. And the world's been upside down ever since, until the second Adam, Jesus Christ, died on the cross and provided a way for man's world to be turned back right up again, right side up. The second accusation, they were acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there was another king, Jesus. Now the one is kind of a, it's kind of a subjective, right, accusation. They've turned the world upside down. Okay, what does that mean, you know? But now this one is a little bit more serious. You see, because Caesar, there was emperor worship in Rome in those days. And that's a pretty serious charge. They're saying there's another king, besides Caesar. Let me ask you this. If the same accusations were leveled against you, would you be found guilty? You know, you're going around turning the world upside down with everything you're saying. Uh, you, you act like there's this other king in your life. You know, do people see that Jesus is king in your life? It's kind of a challenge when you read that. 
So it says, when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And now we get to the next city in Berea. Verse 10. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now, notice that it, what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that they held a prayer meeting to discuss what's the next thing to do. Although I assume that they probably prayed. I'm not saying they didn't pray, but it doesn't say that in scriptures. They also didn't presume that God would protect Paul if he remained there in Thessalonica. You know, God's, you know, no harm can fall us. You know, we're just going to stay here. They didn't presume that. They basically just made a decision based on prudence. Hey, we think it'd be a wise thing, Paul. <laughs> we, I think, we, you know, so that you're still alive to do some more. I think it'd be a good idea if you just, we're going to send you off to another city. It was probably just based on prudence. And also, by doing this, Jason would have received his security deposit back. Because that's kind of what it was. It was kind of like bail, sort of speak, you know. Um, if Paul and, and them had done some more, you know, Jason would have never got his money back. But now Paul's gone, so now they can go back and go, can we get our deposit back? I don't know if that's how it worked, but that's what I think anyways. Verse 11. Now, speaking about the Bereans, and I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with this passage of Scripture. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica. And think about that. The faith of the Thessalonians. The church in Thessalonica was a great big, you know, it's a Gentile church. It was how Paul described them. But now he talks about the Bereans. They were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. They received the word with all readiness. For the, for the Bereans, there was this willingness, there was this enthusiasm, there was this eagerness to know more of the Lord. I mean, they were hungry. They were doing what Paul wrote in 1 Peter 2, 2, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. And desire that. One of the things that's been my prayer for all of us this year is that we, as we're reading scriptures and as we're, you know, it, 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 you know, maybe in the beginning, it's more like, you know, okay, I've got to get this into my routine and I've I really got to work on it. And there's some mornings of like, oh man, you know, I made this commitment. I'm going to do this. And, 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 and it's almost like, almost like an obligation. And sometimes reading scriptures, I'll be honest, sometimes it, it has been an obligation for me. But my prayer has been for all of us, the more we do it, the more we go, man, I, I, I just get partway through the day, man, oh, man, I got I to gotta get to God's word, man. I, I'm hungry for what the Lord wants to say to me today. That, that's my prayer for all of us, myself included. As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. You know who Luke is talking about here? Luke, the guy who wrote Acts? He's talking about the Jews who attended the synagogue because the Gentiles didn't have any scriptures to go to. It was the Jews. They're the ones that went back to the Old Testament scripture, dug through the scriptures of what Paul is saying, and everything that Paul said, they examined it in light of the Old Testament scriptures. In other words, they didn't make a snap judgment that this guy's, you know, he's off his rocker and he's teaching false things. They examined 
these things themselves. They examined the scriptures themselves. They also, on the flip side, didn't just take what Paul was saying and assuming it was truth. Again, they themselves examined the scriptures. You know, we live in a day and an age where people base a lot of what they believe on their emotions. This is, this is what I feel. And, and a lot of people base their beliefs on, on feelings, how they feel about stuff, or their emotions, or their experience, or even their intellectual knowledge and philosophy. This is, my, this is the way I'm going to view life. This is, you know, I'm, I'm whatever. We've had discussions in our Calvary Chapel Distinctives classes. It's been good. We talked about predestination as opposed to free will. You know, where does Calvary Chapel stand? And, you know, where, where does things, when the dust settles, where's Calvary Chapel in that? We talked about the gifts of the Spirit. We even talked about what happens when a person dies and, and many more things. And, you know, to be honest with you, we all have our opinions, right? We all have our opinions. But at the end of the day, man, it's the Bible. It's God's Word is our only guide as to what is true and false. Because if we base our, our beliefs on anything else, if we, if, you know, unless we ground our, our beliefs in Scripture, we're going to be lost in a sea of relativism. Because your truth might not match my truth. And we're seeing that today. You know, you may know me, and some of you know me very well. Um, my no, wife knows me very, very well. But, you know, some of you, have, I've known you for 20-some-odd years. Some maybe less than that, but you know you may know me very well, and you may trust that I would never lead you astray, and I pray that I never do scripturally. But even me, and don't take what I'm saying here, or any other teacher, or even what a commentary. Maybe you got this fam- favorite commentary that you like to go to. I mean, I, I just love this commentary. It explains it so well. So, man, don't rely on those things for what you believe. Man, search the scriptures yourself to see if these things are so. Think about this. The Bereans had the greatest intellectual mind of the New Testament, of, of, of the church. There's nobody greater than Paul. They had the greatest theological mind of the church age, and they still examined scriptures themselves to see if these things were so, if they were backed up scripturally. You know, I encourage you to do that. There's two benefits to doing that. The first benefit is it keeps you safe from false doctrine. It's a safeguard for your own soul. You know, I remember one time that um, Teresa and I were um, sharing the gospel with a family a relative of hers um, who grew up in the Catholic Church. And uh, he basically said, you know, he heard what we said, but he basically said, you know, I just, I just rely on what the priest tells me. Wow. Can you imagine that? You're going to base your eternal destiny, I mean your eternal destiny on what somebody else says? Don't base your eternal destiny on what I say. <laughs> Think about it. This is serious. Your future forever and ever and ever is based on what somebody else says. And you need to be responsible. You are responsible for you. You know, when you stand before the Lord, and let's say that I was teaching a false doctrine, and you stand before the Lord, and the Lord says, what about this? You go, well, yeah, yeah, but, but you know, Pastor Don said this. 
that's not going to that's not going to matter, right? I'm responsible. He'll, he's going to judge me for what I teach, but he's going to judge you for what you believed. So this is this is not just like you know, it'd be a good idea if you guys really search. Be like be a Berean. No, this is this your eternal destiny rests on it. You got to know what you believe. You have to know what you believe, because you're going to be responsible yourself. So that's the first benefit. It safeguards your own soul. The second thing is when you discover truth from God's word, man, it becomes your truth. I, 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 can't, I can't emphasize that anymore. It's so important. What do I believe? Not What does a well-known teacher believe? I, I really trust this guy. I like how he says things. What, you, what do you believe? You know, there was a time, I grew up in a, in a denomination that had a different eschatological end times uh, view or beliefs about the end times. And uh, it's interesting because growing up, I used to question. I'd question my parents a lot. I'd question people at church. I'm like, you know, what about this thing? And they'd give me this, this thing. And, and, you know, I'm like, okay. But for some reason, it just didn't settle with me about their belief about the end times. And, and, you know, it's almost like, well, you know, this portion of scripture, you, you can't really take that literal. You, you got, it's, it's, it's symbolic, you know, so you can't take that literal. And, you know, uh, uh, that was just kind of applied in those days. You know, we're, we're much, you know, further along down the road here and stuff. And, and it got to the point where I'm like, man, I need to know what I believe. And I did that. Uh, the rapture of the church, that was something for me. I was like, what do I believe? Not what does Pastor Chuck Smith or what does, you know, any other famous pastor, what do they believe? What, what, what do I believe? I want to know. And so for me, that's just one example. Man, I searched the scriptures and I prayed and I read through it and I did my own study. It's not like well, I'm going to get a book on this and see what they, no, no, no. I did it myself. And I tell you what, God honored that. And I have what I believe based on what I feel the Lord shared me, showed me. That, that's, for me, it's my truth now because I own it. Because I, I could go back and go, well, this is, this is why I believe what I believe. It's so important. I want to encourage you folks, don't be a lazy Christian. There are a lot of lazy Christians in this generation today. They just listen to some teacher on the radio or maybe their favorite teacher on the internet. Or they come here on Sundays and they just listen to me and then the rest of the week they don't do anything more. I, 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 I'm not following you guys around. I'm not saying, well, you know, the odds are there's people here that the only time they crack open the Bible is right here. I, I, I just know it. I mean, we're, we're humans, right? Don't be a lazy Christian. Don't let this be your theme song. Where he leads... Uh, where he leads us, we will follow. What he feeds us, we will swallow. Don't let that be. Man, be a Berean. And notice what it says, that they did this daily. So in other words, they didn't just read even devotionally daily. That's what I've been encouraging us to do, is read devotionally daily. But they also studied it daily. Man, they dug into it. So important. Verse 12. Therefore, many of them believed... And also, not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men, 
But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to sea, uh, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. And so now the third city, Athens. Verse 16, Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Athens, a very famous ancient city. It was known, it was home to the most renowned philosophers in history, uh, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. I have another quote from Pastor Jack Arnold describing Athens. He says, Athens was the academic and cultural center of Greece and the whole world. The political and commercial power of Greece had moved to Corinth, but Athens, named after the goddess Athene, still remained, in the intellectual, still remained the intellectual capital of the world. No city in the ancient world was more distinguished for philosophy, learning, and the arts than was Athens. However, when Paul came to Athens, its glory was fading fast, for it was living on its laurels. It had become a decadent pagan city given over to this pure speculative philosophy, having itching ears for some new truth or experience. The Bible says in the last days there are going to be people who have itching ears. They're going to accumulate teachers. They're going to gather teachers. How did he know about the Internet? You know, I've got my podcast. Teachers that can tickle their ears what they want to hear. You know, it's been said that there were over 30,000 statutes and shrines to idols in Athens. In fact, there's an ancient quote, I don't know who it was, but this one of their ancient writers said this, it's easier to find a god in Athens than a man. <laughs> I mean, it's serious. Jack Arnold goes on to say this, it's interesting to note that in this city of philosophy, there was the most rampant idolatry. I mean, this was the intellectual capital of the world, and yet... It was rampant with idolatry. He says this, Humanistic philosophy always causes men to set up their own idols, and these idols ultimately bring despair to the human soul. This shows the vanity of learning apart from God. And so as per usual, Paul first reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the Gentile worshipers, and then additionally it says he went into the marketplace daily. So whoever happened to show up, he starts talking to them. You know, it says whoever happened to be there. Of course, that translates into divine appointments, right? There's no, there's no happenstance in Scripture. It was a divine appointment. I want to encourage you to look for those divine appointments. And, you know, if you're anxious to do that kind of thing, it takes prayer. It takes preparation. It takes a willingness to engage with people. Some people are really, you know, I don't really like to, you know, they're very, uh, when you talk about when you're, you don't want to talk to somebody, you know, you're kind of, you're shy or whatever. It takes a willingness to engage. And it also takes a preparation, you know, reading scriptures. Ask the Lord, Lord, show me something today. Uh, being willing to share your testimony. You know, you might be afraid uh, if I start sharing with someone, they're going to they're gonna poke holes in my, in my thinking. You know, that's possible. But 
No one will ever argue with your testimony, right? It's your testimony. They can't. You can share your testimony with people. And so, you know, pray. Uh, we've done this several times. My wife does this a lot. Just talking to someone, find out something that's going on in their life, and then she'll just say, hey, can we pray for you? It's amazing. We've never had, never had anyone say, no, 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 no prayers. I mean, who knows if they even believe or anything, but they're like, yeah, you can do that. Man, we get, to, we get to invade their space with the gospel of Jesus Christ through prayer. That's an awesome thing. So you can just pray with people. You know, ask them a question. Hey, you know, tell me about yourself or whatever. That's what Paul was doing. Don't miss those daily opportunities to converse in the marketplace. Verse 18. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the, and the resurrection. So we have these two groups of people in Athens, right? The Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers. The Epicureans, they would be kind of like the atheists of their day. They denied the existence of God. They denied that there was life after death. And what's the result if you believe that? There's no God, there's no life after death. Materialism. He who has the most toys wins, right? You've seen that bumper sticker before? The result is materialism. Whatever brought you sensual fulfillment. Their goal was the gratification of the senses, both physically and sexually. You get the most out of life because once you're dead, man, that's it. You cease to exist. Their motto was eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's the Epicureans. Then we have the Stoic philosophers. The Stoics would be, well, they were pantheists. In other words, everything is God. God is everywhere and everything is God. Uh, they'd be like the New Agers of their day. For them, pleasure was not good and pain was not evil. Their emphasis was on personal discipline and self-control. They were self-made people, you know. As a result, they were self-sufficient. They were unmoved by inner feelings or outer circumstances. They were apathetic to what was going on around them, showing or feeling no interest, enthusiasm, or concern. Their motto probably would have been, hey, just grin and bear it. Verse 19. And they took him and brought him to the Oropagus, uh, saying, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athians, Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but to either to tell or to hear some new thing. The Oropagus, uh, uh, this is what Vincent uh, says about it. Speaking about the Hill of Mars, that's where the Oropagus uh, you know what I'm talking about, where that place was. <laughs> the seat of the ancient and venerable Athenian court, which decided the most solemn questions connected with religion. Socrates was arraigned and condemned here on the charge of innovating on the state religion. It received its name from the legend of the trial of Mars for the murder of the son of Neptune. The judges sat in the open air upon seats hewn out in the rock and on a platform on a platform ascended by a flight of stone steps immediately from the marketplace. So this is right above the marketplace. It says there, for all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to, uh, to tell or to hear some new thing. What's, what's the latest? 
you may have heard this before. It's kind of cliche, but it is, it's good. If it's true, it's not new. And if it's new, it's probably not true. These guys were doing the original trivial pursuit up there on Mars Hill. You know, that, that's, they just wanted it, stuff. You know, Paul spoke to, first, uh, to Timothy. 2 Timothy 2, verse 16 says, But shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness. Sometimes we can get into these conversations like, okay, what does this have to do with eternity? Paul said this to the church in Colossae. Chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, Walk in wisdom towards those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be seasoned, uh, be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Verse 22. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Oropagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. Very interesting how he, how he speaks here. First thing he says, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. You know, Paul complimented them basically where he could. You know, the quickest and easiest way to close off communication with someone you're trying to share the gospel with is to attack and offend that's the easiest way. You may be right in what you're saying. You know, Muhammad was, you know, whatever you say about it. You know, you, you're probably right. But I can guarantee you're going to shut. I mean, the wall's going to go up right away. Paul didn't do that. Paul didn't denounce their humanistic philosophy as wrong as it was. He didn't denounce it. You know, think about this. Paul's walking around. He's basically sightseeing while he's waiting for these other guys to show up. And I can imagine as he's walking around, he's praying, Lord, Lord, give me, show me, how, how can I reach these people? And then he sees that one statue to the unknown God. They had a shrine to an unknown God. And just in case they missed this one, Paul, uh, you know, just in case they missed one, because they had like 30,000. And so Paul says, that, I'm going to introduce you to that God that you, you don't even know his name, but I'm going to tell you. In reality, they miss the one God. He says, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. Can you imagine? They're, they're like, oh, wow. You know, because they knew about these idols. It would have got their attention in a big way. Verse 24, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. So to the atheists, he is saying there is a God, and he's a creator of heaven and earth. And he is immense. To the pantheists, he exists outside of creation. They, they, they're saying everything, everything in creation is God. No, 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 no. He exists outside of creation. He is self-sufficient. He does not, eat any, does not need anything from his creation. He's the provider. He gives all to his creation. In fact, he quotes this. He's the one who gives us life and breath and all things. James writes this, chapter 1, verse 17, Every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. 
Verse 26, And he has made from one blood every nation of of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. So for the pantheists, God... For the pantheists, excuse me, God was not a person. He's not, he's like this inanimate, he's this force, right? He's an impersonal force. But what Paul is saying, God is a person, and you can have a relationship with him. He is involved directly in human affairs. uh, Warren Wiersbe quoted this. Paul quoted from the poet Epimenides, for in him we live and move and have our being. Then he added a quotation from two poets, Aratus and Clinthus, for we are also his offspring. Paul was not saying that all people on earth are the spiritual children of God, for sinners become God's children only by faith in Jesus Christ. Rather, he was affirming the fatherhood of God in a natural sense, for man was created in the image of God. In this sense, Adam was a son of God. Verse 29, therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art in man's devisings. See, the reality is we were created in his image. And it's foolish for us to create, to attempt to create God in our image, which is exactly what the Greek gods were. There were these idols that were created in the image of man. They were patterned after mere men. They behaved like mere men. Verse 30, Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of all this uh, to all by raising him from the dead. So what Paul is basically saying is not only is God the creator and we're his creation, but he's involved in our lives. I see that in my own life, man, how God intervenes and and does things. He's not impersonal. And he has appointed our lives and he controls our history and we are all accountable to him. Basically, he says, in times past, he's overlooked our our ignorance, but now he has provided a savior who's going to judge. It wasn't that God said, you know, don't forget about, no, that was sin, but God overlooked it at the time until the savior came. But now that the Savior's come, we're responsible. And he has given us assurance of all this to all by raising him from the dead. Look at verse 32. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them Dionysius, the uh, Aropagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. You know, it's interesting, if you go to different commentaries, there's different opinions about this message on Mars Hill. Some people think that Paul's message was a failure because he didn't mention the name of Jesus Christ nor the cross. And if you look at, and we won't look at it this morning, but in Acts chapter 18, after these things, Paul departed from there and went to Corinth. And if you were to read 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul is going to say this, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ 
and in him, and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So, so just after that, Paul said, this is how I came to you, Corinthians. And people would look back and say, well, you know, that's just the opposite of what Paul did there on Mars Hill. But when I look at verse 32, it seems like Paul was interrupted as soon as he mentioned the resurrection of the dead. There's two responses. First of all, they were mocking the foolishness of the resurrection. And the second thing was apathy. We'll hear you again on this matter. You know, Paul had been in the synagogue, right? At the beginning of the chapter, he was preaching Jesus to the crowds there and speaking to them of the resurrection. And I think it's quite possible Paul was preparing to start sharing about Jesus by name and the cross. But he got, as soon as he mentioned the resurrection of the dead, I think he got cut off. Again, Paul was a man led by the Spirit. And maybe he sensed in his spirit, you know, I'm throwing pearls to swine. He's, it's possible. I don't think he wanted to debate human philosophy with them or continue quoting Greek poets. I think he just sensed a closed door. You know, there's some people that say, you know, Paul learned a lot. That was a mistake. There was only a couple people that came to faith, you know, that, that are mentioned. There's a few people. You know, he went to Thessalonica and, you know, who knows how many hundreds and maybe thousands of people come to faith. So, you know, Paul, he kind of went this philosophical route and uh, there wasn't very many people responded and so he learned his lesson and he came to Corinth and I'm just going to preach Christ and him crucified you know that's possible I'm not saying that that's wrong but I'll tell you this it's wrong to judge the success of his message based on the outcome it's wrong to of how many people responded you know, Jesus said in Luke 15.10, Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Just one person comes to faith. And there was more than one person. We have to be so careful not to judge ministries based on numbers. It's a human tendency, but we have to be careful not to do that. Because if we do that, I'll be honest with you, this ministry is a failure. We're just a little church. We're a failure then. But when I look around this room and I see lives changed, I know people are starting to fall in love with, with the Lord more and with his word. Man, I don't consider that a failure. And I don't think the Lord does either. You know, Jesus preached to the multitudes. Remember, he fed thousands of people there. But he also would take time to speak to that one, the one woman at the well. The one person here, uh, you know, Nicodemus at night. He, 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 would, he would meet with the individuals, not Nick at night, but you know what I mean. <laughs> For you and I, let's just forget the numbers. Let's focus on the person that the Lord's put in front of you, in the marketplace, in the home, wherever it is. Focus on that one person and individually minister to them. And let's be like Jesus and let's be like Paul, prepared to share the Lord with whoever crosses our paths. And if I can encourage you, man, know what you believe. Be firm in your belief. This is, this is my truth. This is what I believe based on scriptures, not based on what you think, what you feel. Because I tell you what, I wouldn't want to base my human, my, my, my eternal destiny on, well, you know, I kind of thought that, you know, this is, this is the way things were. 
I want to base it on God's word because God's words are anchor, our solid rock. Why don't you stand? Let's go, Lord, in prayer.